Welcome to Geo Interesting. Today on the podcast, you will hear from two women in NGA's research directorate, one running the research and development portfolio for NGA, and a scientist discovering the latest in hyperspectral signatures. NGA's director of research, Cindy Daniel, and research scientist, Jennifer Durdall, might be at different stages of their career, but both are strong advocates for women in the STEM fields. Dr. Daniel has more than 30 years of experience in both industry, academia, and the Department of Defense community. As NGA's Director of Research, Dr. Daniel is focused on the technology development of image processing, computer vision, artificial intelligence, and the integration of these technologies. Jen is a graduate of Virginia Tech and has been with NGA for about 10 years, during which she's coordinated research and facilitated joint experiments with partner organizations in Australia, Canada, and Great Britain. She's also worked to promote the adoption of new geospatial intelligence technologies as part of a multidisciplinary team tasked with improving tradecraft. Currently, Jen works in the agency's Spectral Pod, one of NGA's main research focus areas. Listen up for their advice on joining the government and their journeys in the intelligence community's research ecosystem. This is GeoInteresting. So, Cindy, how did you get interested in math and science? Well, actually, I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested in math and science. I don't know that it had a specific time or a specific reason, but I just remember always being fascinated by numbers and by the logic involved in numbers and by the patterns that were involved in numbers, and they were just so interesting to me. And I, like I said, I can't remember specific motivation. It was just kind of in organic. Did you do a lot of experiments when you were a child or play around with things, try to understand? Some, but it was more math and science oriented. Oh, okay. But yeah, absolutely. We loved all those experimental kids. I loved being the private investigator playing like I was detective <laughs> and, you know, trying to zero down on exactly what caused something to happen. Remember all of that? Yeah. 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 How about you? How did your interest begin? Kind of like you, I can't think of a specific time. There are, you know, moments in my past where I, looking back, can maybe see a glimmer of, of my interest blossoming. I remember I had to do a book report on a scientist when I was oh. in like fourth grade, and um, I thought it was the stupidest thing. <laughs> but um, none of the scientists that I wanted to pick were available because I was last in line to pick my scientist, hmm. and so I was assigned Robert Oppenheimer. And I just was fascinated by him as a man, um, him as a scientist, and the, the science that he did uh, working on the, the nuclear weapons program back in the day. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Um, I guess in, in high school, we had a, an engineering teacher uh, who was really motivational. Uh, he always wanted us to experiment and solve problems and, and try things for ourselves, and, and that was neat. But I always wanted to figure out the why. I never really liked the numbers part of it. Uh, math is not my strong suit, but the, the reasoning behind things yeah. is really interesting to me. Interesting, okay. Since you always were interested in, in numbers and math, what did you want to do as a kid? What was your, your dream growing up? So that also, uh, very ambiguous because I had so many ideas. There were so many mm. things that I wanted to be and they weren't all math and science. 
So uh, that would be very hard to say, but I, I wanted to be everything from, believe it or not, from an astronaut to a fashion designer, which has nothing, <laughs> honest to goodness, it's true. I, there were so many jobs I thought were fascinating. I think it was really more uh, what science holds is the sense of the unknown all the time, where you're constantly looking for mm. something that's, that you don't understand and you don't know how to do it and you're trying to figure it out. And so I think that might have been part of the reason that every career looked interesting to me. For there was some aspect of it that I was interested in. Uh, uh, so, so so that's 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 me. <laughs> so how, how about you? Well, oh, go ahead. Um, I was never one of those people that knew exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. I still yeah. don't know what I want to do when I grow right. up. Um, you know, I I wanted to be an Egyptologist at one point. Cool. Um, I wanted to be a nuclear engineer. Okay. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah. You know. um, I don't know. It, it's been a long process trying to figure it out, and it's it's hard to pick just one thing. Exactly. I think that's what happened when I was young too. It was hard to zero in on one because they all look so fun and interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just knew that I didn't want to do the same thing day after day. Right. That's what I knew. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, some really smart people. Um, you know, like being a dentist, you're filling a cavity every day, and they're still really smart. But I want to do a different thing every day. Right. Yeah. So that's probably what attracted me. Although I've always wanted to do something that I've been good at. Yes, I don't like true. the feeling of, I like being challenged, but I don't like feeling like I'm always scratching to be better and not adequate. Granted, ex absolutely, yeah. absolutely concur with that. So while you were in school and, and you were um, getting to the end of your degree and getting to your senior year, you had so many options open to you, so many things available, especially being a scientist, the different ways you can vector and trajectory. And so what made you want to join government over industry? I guess it's kind of in my blood. My dad worked oh. for the government. He was uh, with the USGS mm -hmm. uh, and with the Weather Service before that. Uh, my mom used to be a legislative assistant in Congress. Oh. Uh, so it just always seemed natural, and D.C. is kind of a government town. So mm, that's yeah. what a lot of the job options are here. Yeah. Um, it had a lot of attractive uh, aspects on a personal level in terms of work-life balance mm -hmm. and um, the the flexibility and the the permanence. Um, I don't know. I uh, I had a lot of internships when I was going through school, uh, both in in high school and in college. I I interned at uh, night vision labs um, as well as the the naval research lab. Oh. Um, so it just it seemed like a natural progression. Yeah. Okay. So. I, what about you? I mean, you were in industry and now you're in government. How did, how did that happen and, and what would you tell people that are considering coming to the government? So I like very much, I've jumped back and forth. Mm -hmm. I was industry, then uh, DARPA government, and then industry again, and then NGA government. So I like the fact going back and forth and now it's, it happened twice in both directions mm -hmm. because I bring a little bit of both sides to the equation when I, and on the other side. And it's very interesting to, to see the differences between them and to pull uh, the, the experiences you have from one to the other. Yeah. So, yeah, so I like it. How do they differ? What, what are the major oh, my differences stars. between them? <laughs> <laughs> I would say the major difference that I notice on a day-to-day -day basis is that industry is, is uh, motivated and almost everything you do there by a capitalist-driven feeling. And I worked for two non, well, SRI was a nonprofit, HRL mm -hmm. was close to, as you can be to a nonprofit. It was a research lab. It was supposed to be for profit, but not really. <laughs> and so, but even in those cases, you're driven by the bottom line, you're driven by the dollar, and that really, uh, really um, 
has uh, an effect of almost a Darwinian evolution in everything you do, a Darwinian evolution in, in the uh, career uh, uh, fields, that they, the positions that exist. If the positions aren't becoming, they're not um, of, of interest to the actual output that you're, you're producing at that time, um, you know, as, as, as from the 1980s through the 90s, 2000 till now, uh, science has changed greatly, and the things that were important then are not as important now. I mean, material science didn't even exist in the 80s. So my point is those positions, uh, the ones that are not being utilized as much will die away, mm -hmm. and the ones that uh, are becoming new will, will start to evolve. So just positions and people, everything evolves, and, and staff can maneuver much more quickly and adroitly in industry than they can here in government, I find. And it's primarily, I think, the capitalism drives everything to, to evolve in, again, almost a Darwinian sense. That makes sense. Um, I don't see that in government at all. Really? <laughs> no. So Only, oh, well, it's not true. I see small parts of it in government, but not nearly to the degree I am in okay. industry. Yeah. That makes sense. I was going to say that um, it seems like what you were describing in terms of careers that are, um, what am I trying to say here? Um, in demand? Or, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, die away in government as well. We're constantly changing organizational structure and revectoring and going through the Heilmeyer questions for our projects yeah. and things yeah. like that. You do, but just slower, on a slower yeah. pace. And it's not just careers, but it's processes. Mm -hmm. I guess that's more of what I don't see in government. The processes that become stayed and, and they're the historical uh. processes, they're always there and they're much slower to die out here than they are in, in industry where you've got to make payroll. Right. And people are going to get laid off if you don't. And so you move and pivot and agile much quickly in, in industry. And I like that aspect. Yeah. And it'd be nice to see a little bit more of that in government. I guess I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. But I love both of them. I wouldn't be here if I did it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never think. really worked in industry. So hearing that, that perspective is yeah. useful. So in terms of, of advancement in the field, and, and as director, your mm -hmm. field is quite large, encompasses mm -hmm. a lot. Um, what excites you most? Hmm, what's coming up on the horizon? So I would say, honestly, what excites me the most is the integration of disparate fields coming together. Hmm. You know, seeing different parts of the world starting to work together. I'm trying to think of a good example here off the cuff, uh, but um, um, Wavelets were an example of math mathematicians and engineers who used to never talk to each other, coming together and finding out that they could apply this mathematical technique into an engineering world, and it spawned the whole new uh, concept of wavelets. And, and there are many other, even more disparate fields that are starting to talk to each other. You know, robotics and biology. You would never think, and now people, there's a robotics and a biology, they're coming together to form a company because they're building prosthetics. And prosthetics mm. are really biological robots, yeah. in a sense. And you've got to interface with the nervous system. So you've got hardware and software and biologists all coming together um, to, to build, and new material scientists to build a product. And that, um, from, you know, especially like in the 1950s, everything was more stratified. And so now science, and edu as the as time goes on, it becomes more and more uh, uh, amalgamated together. And the sciences are really crossing paths in the disparate fields. And that excites me. So, okay. Yeah. The new possibilities that come together at the fusion points? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You don't yeah. think about things that you see from your perspective and they see it differently from a different field. Yeah. So, yeah. It, that's where growth happens. Exactly. At those points. Yeah. Good yeah. insight. Perfect. Yeah. How about yourself? Since you, in your work, do you have anything that that, uh, that has uh, jumped out on your horizon lately? So I think a lot of what you mentioned um, applies more narrowly in the field that I work in as well, the, the spectral field. Um, it, the, the overlap between uh, sensor types, uh, sensor systems, data systems, 
um, and just the, the explosion of data that we're getting as mm -hmm. commercial becomes more and more mm -hmm. uh, at the fore. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, having data in such large quantities is something that we've never really enjoyed before. And we don't know how to handle it. Uh, we're trying to learn how to handle it. And it just opens up so many possibilities and, and so many new frontiers of things that we can explore and understand and, and see in whole new ways. We'll return to our podcast in just a moment. But first, a word from this episode's sponsor, the NGA Student Intern Program. Are you a college student interested in a career that studies the Earth and ensures the protection of the world? If so, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is currently accepting applications for its Summer 2020 Internship Program. NGA offers paid internships that provide real-world experience in support of both the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. Your internship could ultimately lead to your first job out of college and on your way to a career in geospatial intelligence. Know the Earth, show the way, understand the world. That's what we do at NGA. Apply online at intelligencecareers.gov before September 30th and join us in our important national security mission. So what piece of advice would you give to a woman trying to, to rise in the ranks and get promoted either in government or in industry, kind of across mm -hmm. the board? What's, what's been the best So my number one was never necessarily given to me, but my number one I would think of, uh, be confident. Hmm. Confidence. That's, I think, critical to just, um, just really uh, treat yourself well and think highly of yourself and realize that you have something valuable to offer and uh, just put yourself out there with an air of confidence and try not to let anything else uh, bring you down. Just yeah, be very confident. Um, I, uh, but one piece of, strong piece of advice that was given very early in my career in my first performance evaluation was most people in their performance evaluations uh, write what they're going to improve on. Like, well, I really need to take C++ and I need to do this and I need to become DIWEA certified and I'm going to improve on this and these are all the things I'm going to do to get better. So my advisor, my professor told me, he said, stop, turn that over, and he said, just play to your strengths. He said, whatever your weaknesses are, just don't even mention them. Just put those aside, think of what your strengths are, and then play to your strengths. If you're a good storyteller, you're a good briefer, he just try to focus your career on your strengths. People realize that and focus on that, and just don't even mention what you need to improve. And I'm really not a good coder, and I've got to take more C. Yeah, so. that's, that's interesting that you got that advice as well. When I was first here at NGA, yeah. uh, one of my supervisors told me something very different. I had written in my performance evaluation mm -hmm. um, you know, all the things that I thought that I did well and all the things that I thought that I did poorly because I was trying to give a, a balanced, objective view. Of course. And, um, <laughs> She told me, don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's not what this is about. You want to put your best foot forward yeah. and take credit for the things that you've done. Um, I also uh, tended to, to give credit to my team, mm. which I think it's important to give credit where credit is due and to, to yeah. acknowledge the contributions that everybody has made. But when you're writing a, a, a resume or your performance assessment, um, take credit for the, the part that you played. Right. That's what she told me. Right. Don't forget how important you were in that right. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in that same vein, on a similar line of reasoning, what is the piece of advice you would give a woman who is um, just entering her career now, very early? 
For me, I can't remember those days. I'm trying to think, what was it like? <laughs> no, kidding. <laughs> I guess there are two main pieces of advice. One would be to always take opportunities that are offered, even if they look unattractive. Oh, yeah, that's good. So when I was first starting here, um, it took a long time for my clearance to go through, as it takes for everybody's yeah. to go through. Yeah. And my billet uh, was no longer available by the time oh, my, no. my clearance arrived. And so I got a call saying, um, you can come on board, but not as a scientist. You can do taskers in the front office. <laughs> and that sounded so unappealing, <laughs> uh, because I was all excited about getting in and doing the science. Exactly. Um, but I agreed, and I spent a year in the front office doing taskers, and it really gave me a, a perspective on the agency and the mission and our directorate, and I, I think it was a really valuable experience as, as much as I wasn't looking forward to it. Really? Um, and and I've seen that you. happen in, in other things as well. I've, I've been in positions where I didn't feel like I was excelling, and um, this gets to the, the second piece of advice. Find mentors, not just at high levels of leadership, mm -hmm. where you can um, chart your career and understand where you want to end up, but also find mentors that are closer to where you are in your um, current career path, because they will interact with you on a more personal level, yeah. they'll see you more often, and they can tell you what your strengths are even when you don't know them yourselves, and mm. help you position yourself better to play to those. What do you think in the future lies for your field? You know, it's really hard to say because yeah. we're at such a crossroads with that um, influx of, of data that I was talking about uh, with, with commercial coming on board. Um, I Kind of like when people really started using the internet and all the changes that we were able to see when GPS was integrated with um, uh, online services mm -hmm. and, and the totally new fields that, that came mm -hmm. out of that. I think having the, the science that we've been doing all along with the increased number of sensors and the increased mm -hmm. level of data will really open up questions that we never even thought to ask. Oh, very interesting. The unknown unknowns. Yeah. 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 So mine's very similar is that I think that uh, Everything, right now we think things are embedded, like you said, GPS with mapping services, but I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. I think everything's become far more embedded and implicit in our everyday life. Soon there will be having, there'll be even bionic chi or chips that are implanted with you and constantly um, uh, with updates that are, that are, that you're living it within this embedded computing with you and everything you're doing more so than we are now, mm -hmm. much more so, so it'll all become very uh, integrated. But on the other hand, I think along with that, we're going to get to the point where these new AI systems and machine learning systems right now, when they fail, they fail spectacularly, right? Yes. And their failure modes are un, um, unpredictable. And so I think we, that's what I do think will start happening. People are going to be able to uh, get a handle on explaining AI and give mm. some reasoning to it and figure out, they'll be able to give the space where things are going to be failing and why and why things are happening the way they are. So you yeah. see us continuing to move in that direction and not looking at the spectacular failures and pulling back? I do, yeah, I do, because humankind in general pushes forward. Mm. You know, from the very beginning, we always push forward to frontiers. Uh, I mean, there's always a step forward, uh, two steps forward, one step backward, yeah. two steps forward, one's back. But the, the arc is going to be continuously forward and going that direction. Yeah. I think that um, also 
people will becoming, uh, it'll become more integrated, so the humans will be more in, inter interactive with the AI systems. Mm -hmm. So it won't be separated as much as this is the robot doing this and this is you doing that. That's what will become more fluid, hmm. very fluid, and you won't even realize when it's you and the robot happening so which okay. is scary yeah yeah i don't like bit. that part yeah as long as we don't get to the singularity or skynet or the matrix we'll be fine yeah <laughs> yeah so is is that vision what motivates you or is there something else that uh that drives you to oh. do what you do oh you ask the hard questions <laughs> so yeah i think it's i think what energizes me is the fact that in general there's often something, there's a new challenge ahead every day. And so that would be the local motivation. The global motivation is really uh, the national security. I grew up mm -hmm. similarly to my dad um, was in reserves. He was an active duty mm -hmm. Air Force, but he worked civil service, he was in reserves. And so that he, uh, so in the mil I grew up near a military base, uh, Eglin Air Force Base. And so the military was all around us. And many of my friends had dads that went overseas and didn't come back and things like that. And so the National Service has been in, ingrained in me for, as, since being a child. So that's the overarching motivation, to be honest. But on the local sense of day-to-day -day activities, there's always a new challenge for us every day. And I think that drives you forward to come in and try to, um, try to understand um, how policy is now interacting with the algorithm that you want to design and why they won't let you do it. And <laughs> so this is something they never taught you in school, but right. it's really part of your job. And so it motivates you to figure that you're doing something new and different, I think. Yeah. yeah, and it's fun also, the mo here's the motivation I know, is to ask the questions. That's what motivates me because in school, you're always taught to, uh, to give the answers, all right? And so I had one uh, professor in graduate school and she had homeworks that she uh, gave four questions and then you, the fifth problem, you had to design your own problem. Every week you had to design your own problem. And I was like, great, piece of cake. I'm gonna get 20% of my homework <laughs> every week. I'll get at least a 20% because I'll just write a problem. And I found out through that class, that was the hardest part of everything you did was designing your own homework problem. Mm. And she said that's exactly what she wanted to teach us. And I think that's what motivates, is learning how to ask the right question and how to ask the good, you know, deep in, in question that, that really is pertinent and gets to the issue that you want to understand. And, uh, and she said, I wanted you to learn because in school, except for my class, you're always taught to give the answer. She said that when you get out of school, that's never, they're never gonna give you the problem and say, give us the answer. You're going to go to work, and you're going to have to discover the problem. What is the problem? What is it that you need to, do, to, to, to figure out? And um, so that motivates me, asking the question, asking the right question. And I always ask my son when he comes home from school every day, I never ask him, I, and this is a quote from somebody else made, I just copied it, but I never say, what did you learn today at school? I always say, what did you ask today at school? What kind of oh. questions did you ask your teacher today at school? Because okay. that's what they need to learn, how to ask questions. So how about yourself? How do you keep yourself going? I think it's the idea, loyalty is not quite the right word for it. Um, duty, I guess. Yeah, national service kind of. That and the idea that, uh, you know, I, I've been assigned a task or I've taken a task oh. on myself and I have a team and people are yeah, counting, counting on me to do my yes. part. Yeah. And I've, I've always been a bit of a perfectionist and I, I want to do my part well. Yeah. I want to get it done right. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's important. Definitely important. So. Thanks for joining the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency for another episode of our podcast, Geo Interesting. 
This is one case where an intelligence agency wants you to spread the word. Tell a friend about GeoInteresting. Look for us on your preferred podcasting platform or on YouTube, or read a transcript of the episode at nga.mil. This episode's music was courtesy of Lee Rosevere from his aptly named albums, Music for Podcasts, available on the free music archive. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.